This is Rafe Bartholomew, author of Basketball, A Love Story, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. Cheers, Hollywood. <laughs> you are Hollywood. How so? Last time we hang out, you were promoting your last, your older book. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Two and Two, McSorley's My Dad and Me? Yes. We have a great podcast together, great time. And then all of a sudden, I see you. You're on ESPN. You're, ev- you're everywhere now with this new book. You, you went Hollywood on me. It's okay. I, I don't know how long it'll last. We'll see. How fun was our last podcast? Yeah, it was great. I mean, that was one of the, one of the best I've done. I was so nervous because the book comes out, so I hit you up right away. I'm like, I love McSorley's. I knew you from Grantland. Right. I didn't know how big your following was in the Philippines, and you had the first book. I'm like, oh, this guy's not going to write back. You write back right away. Me, you, and your pops hung out at Jack Dempsey's. Dude, that was one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Same here. I mean, I get to do, you know, whenever whenever a book comes out, I get to do a little bit of publicity. And, like, that was one that, oh, sh- that actually felt like I was talking to someone instead of doing an interview. Yeah, the, the generic. So yeah. what made you choose right. to do the book? Uh, how is pops doing? Good. He's still working. You no, know, I think I might have sent you the picture. Maybe I just have Julia. Julia's going to bring the phone in in a minute. Around like uh, seven or eight months ago, I was at McSorley's, mm-hmm. and I see a pops. Yeah, I think I did. I sent yeah, you a picture. Yeah, uh, he told me you were yeah, there. So I see him there, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I want to go say what's up," but I don't want him to think I'm drinking for free. <laughs> so finally, I guess he sends up like a bar back, and, and uh, yeah, and he's like he wants to know why you're not going to say hi to him. I'm like, "No, I'm gonna. I didn't want anything for free." So here, here's the picture for me and, me and your pops. That's and here's what's great. I said to him, "I'm like, uh, can you uh, put the picture on the wall?" He's like, "No." Like <laughs> in front of everyone, I'm like, "Oh, I thought I had a hook there." <laughs> So what's going on with you, man? Book's been fun. Um, you know, like came out in September. Been uh, um, just doing book stuff. I, worked, I took a job working at Eater of all places. Yeah, I saw that on on Twitter. How'd yeah. that happen? I applied for it. I knew I wanted. I needed. To, <laughs> I needed to get a full time job for a minute. Um, and uh, you know, it was out there. It was, it's remote, which is nice, so I can move around wherever you know. Because like my girlfriend is finishing up grad school, so we might you know so. Kind of leaves lets me be flexible while while we figure everything else out. So what are you doing for Eater? Uh, features editing. So it's it's basically the same job I had at Grantland, just minus sports. You know, it's on food. So it's kind of like rekindling some of the, the the food and service DNA inside me. You know, whether it's McSorley's, my mom was into cook was was a chef and and taught hospitality management at City Tech. So it's like you know, it's pretty cool. You doing it all around the city? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I still live in L.A. Unfortunately, <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, I it's, and I work for the national site. So I'm I the, the the stories I've been editing. You know, it's not like the stuff I used Eater for before, which was the maps, the listings. The just I'm looking for a good place to eat. Um, I'm editing stuff like the long magazine kind of stories about all kinds of weird gar- like it's kind of fun, but it's it's, it's stuff that, <laughs> that I don't know if anyone actually cares about. Like <laughs> I, I got a story that I worked on coming out in the next couple of weeks about um, people trying to do vegan, g- not, not vegan, lab grown gelatin. Like these guys, these, these Silicon Valley guys that are um, ba- they're like ordering DNA from from some lab. And then weaving to get weaving it together to grow gelatin so that they so that it doesn't have to come from from animals that get killed. Uh, Wh- who's deciding to do that? I, I that story predates like the assignment predates okay, my okay. Uh, <laughs> my tenure. I just got I got brought in to fix everything. <laughs> um, but um, it's been fun, you know. And, and us, like people that are nice, it's, it's not that hard of a job so far, which I appreciate. And you have um, a real job now. This is right, crazy. Right, right. Um, I had to do it. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass either. Basketball love story. I'm an obsessive reader. Top two or three basketball books I've ever read and top ten books in my life. And I am you know, I do a challenge where I try to read 52 books in 52 weeks. I don't know how you do that, man. Dude, I'm going to be honest. 
this book blew my mind, and I didn't go in there with high expectations, really. So I grabbed the book, and I opened it up, and I want you to describe the format of it. And it just seemed, it, it would say, like, Johnson in bold with the name, and then Bird. So obviously you knew it's Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. Larry Bird, you know, uh, Pistol Pete, all, all different names. And I'm like, I don't want to really read a sentence about all of them. Dude, one page in, beyond grip. So just give me the format of the book, because it's going to be hard for me to try to describe it. Yeah, well, it's like an oral, they, they, they call it oral history format. Um, we used to do them at Grantland for big stories once in a while. We did one on the Malice of the Palace for, for our test. We did one on, you know, sort of big team. We did one, I, I edited one on um, uh, Shaq and Penny and the, and, the, and the magic in those years. And a lot of those, a lot of the things we did got turned into 30 for 30s, which we were both sort of proud of and pissed about. He's like, what the fuck? Like, the magic one was a great 30 um, for 32. Yeah, a lot of these ones that we did, like, like <laughs> you see the re- like the people who, who are actually making the big money at the company are like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's make a movie out of that. I'm like, God damn it. Um, but, uh, so, it, it, and, and the idea is you, you know, if you have this, uh, some large set of interviews, this with, with a bunch of great sources, you know, it, it almost felt like it, you're going to be wasting all of those voices if you just write it through in a narrative and it has a bunch of, you know, it's in paragraphs and, and chapters and you're only putting in a quote here and there. Like, this is like, you're trying to tell the entire story in the voices of the people who lived it. And, and we were lucky, you know, have you seen any of the documentary? Oh, of course, yes, yes, yeah, yes. So, so it start the the whole thing started because the the guy working on the documentary, uh, I guess decided he also wanted a book, um, and so that's when he reached out to me and Jackie, and said, you know, I'm gonna give you all of these transcripts, like 170 interviews that went from three to five hours. All of them were like 100 to 200 pages long. Basically, the, the job was to read it all and then try and pull the book out and arrange it in a way that, that made sense and was worth reading. And how did you and Jackie get, like, drafted to do this? Like, how did they pick you guys to do this? A little bit of, a little bit of dumb luck um, for me. Uh, <laughs> for me, it actually it had a little bit to do with Grantland um, because it was at the time. It was after Grantland, and I was – Beefing hard with Bill Simmons, like we weren't, we hadn't spoken for about six months, oh. um, and I got a email from uh, the director Dan Clores saying, um, "I'm working on a big project. Bill recommended it, b- recommended you to me. He said you're really good. He said that you guys aren't on great terms right now. Give me a call if you're interested." Actually, said that he said that you guys aren't very happy with each other right now, and I I, I read it. I was like, "What the fuck?" What's he got to not be happy with me about? But, um, you know, whatever. It was, so I think it was an olive branch, and I yeah. appreciate that. And it turned into a great opportunity. Um, so uh, that's how I got in. And Jackie and, and Dan share a literary agent, and it made sense because it was such a gigantic project that we were doing it to, We just started doing it together. They, they said, all right, it's too much for one, it's too much for one person, uh, and they got Jackie involved as well. And it worked great because, of course, I mean, it worked great because Jackie is great, but it also because she has this enormous institutional knowledge of the NBA. You know, she's been covering it, covering the league she's for more a than legend, 30 yeah. years. She's 100%. literally in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> um, but her entire career has been as a writer, really. She hasn't, she was not really very familiar with this oral history format either and hadn't approached things from this more editorial kind of point of view. 
he uh, she she so so that's where we kind of fit in together really well because she had this long knowledge I had done a little more editing and was pretty comfortable with working on these this kind of a book or story and we just started reading through everything and splitting everything up and and that was it so now you're getting these papers and I'm gonna steal something I think you said it on the low podcast or somewhere because you've been everywhere you call it, this is the holy grail of basketball interviews you're getting thousands and thousands of pages and they're not just t- these are pages of the greatest interviews from the people the reason we all watch basketball like were you overwhelmed by just holding like articles and um like paragraphs from these legends absolutely man I, and i thought that from day 1 really that because you you see the list of people that were interviewed for this project bill russell oscar robertson pat riley Calipari, you know, everybody, everybody, and it was just amazing. It felt like it's the Holy Grail, and the thing I always say is like the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. right? It's the this is the foundational text. This is like all of the wisdom that the living legends of the game can can give you, or as much as can be collected in one spot. And and we had this great privilege, this honor of trying to go through it and figuring out the best way to distill that into a book that's long, but man, could have been way longer. <laughs> I'm going to go a little nerdy now because the chapters are broken down. How would you guys even go with the whole format? Like, hey, let's pick this chapter, this chapter. Because as I'm reading it, I'm like, dude, they, they need to mention Alan Iverson because he kind of turned, oh, there's a few pages on AI. So you, you actually hit everything. Was there a certain like reason you did it that way? Like you went a little college, you went Dean Smith, then you went the city game. Was there a, a format and who, and who helped that format set up? It, we didn't, it wasn't by some master plan. We, it was a little bit just sort of trying to figure out what was the how to how to how to tell the best most complete story, knowing that it can't be definitive. It can't have everything because it's just it, it, there's too much basketball history to do. And and I I know that we I feel like we gave the college game a little bit of a short shrift. Um, tried of course with with mentioning some of the big dynasties UCLA and and uh, and. You know UNC and stuff like that, but we didn't quite get into it as deeply as we could. And there were some great interviews with the with the with the great. I mean, some of the, my favorite interviews are the great college coaches, the Dale Brown from LSU talking about like Stanley Roberts and Shaq and stuff. So the the really nitty gritty stuff is amazing in there. But when it came down to it, it felt like we had to focus on really the biggest stories in NBA history, the biggest the dynasties. You, that was going to be the backbone of the narrative stuff of the book. So you see it, it really touches on the, you know, it goes, you got Celtics, you got Lakers, you got Bulls, you got the, the great Knicks teams because they had this sort of shorter window, but really league-changing window. And it gripped the whole city. That's kind of what got the city, you, yeah. the, the chapter was named perfectly the city game because the city became engrossed with the Knicks. Yeah. That was so cool about it. And I'll tell you what I'm a little pissed off you about. I'll tell you. So I'm reading the book, and here's how I read books. I'll read a book, and if I'm reading a serial killer book, and they mention something, I just write down a little note. At the end of the thing, I'll look those up. I'm reading this book, and you bring up Connie Hawkins. I'm like, oh, I've heard you always heard about Connie Hawkins, yeah. the Hawk. I look him up. I stopped read. I stopped reading and watched like three hours of YouTube stuff, and go. I went and bought a Piper's jersey. Like I became engrossed and fascinated with Connie Hawkins. Then you talk about UConn and Tennessee, and when I was reading it, Rafe. I'm like, okay, and I'll be honest, I'm like, ah, the WNBA, I want to skim over it. Yet as I'm reading it, I'm like, shit, D- Diana Taurasi just said her last paragraph, we're in a new chapter. You talk about UConn, Tennessee, I'm going to watch UConn, Tennessee games, and it, it brought you back, and it made you watch these old, old games. Yeah. I couldn't picture you reading it. Did you just stop and, like, go do other shit while you, like, 
Yeah, a lot of the time. I mean, you just had to, you had to. Oh man, I gotta I gotta go check this one out. And that was some of the the Connie Hawkins stuff. Roger Brown, who was also caught in the you know sort of injustice of that dragnet. Yeah, can uh, you even call it a scandal? That was that infuriated me. That bothered me. I mean, it, it's it, it was a scandal for them at the time. Now, and in retrospect, it's a scandal for um, the league and for the justice system back then, and a lot of and a lot of that because the they they just. It was just blacklist by association. They had known a, a known gambler, but never fixed anything. I mean, the thing with Connie Hawkins, he was, he was, they the, with Connie Hawkins. They brought him in, and when he was blacklisted, they and and they tried to say you fixed games. He said, well, he never played a college game. He did. He, this was he didn't even get to play at Iowa. It was his freshman year. Freshman couldn't play back then. He never lost a high school game. So they're saying, oh, you, you, you're a fixer. Like, How did I fix anything? Well, you knew fixers. Well, it's New York in the 50s and 60s. Every, th- there was a lot of, it was a different world back then. Everyone involved w- had a little bit of uh, connection to, to gambling. Um, so it was, it was really heartbreaking stuff. And, and what it did to those guys, because they lost the, the first really six, seven years of their career, and thanks to the ABA sort of came along and gave them an opportunity. And, and finally, one of the great things about Connie Hawkins that somehow I, I didn't know that David Stern played a role in that as a young lawyer who was assigned to the case from the NBA side who starts looking into the, the, the legal background, starts eventually acquires the grand jury testimony, and he sees that, wait a minute, Connie Hawkins didn't do anything. We're doing this for no reason. And he starts asking the owners, "Did you? is there a reason why we're doing this? And they said, well, because he's a fixer. He's like, no, he's not. Read. Did you ever oh. read this? And, and, and so David Stern's beginnings in the NBA really go back to being an important part of getting the league to accept Connie Hawkins and, and, and eventually settle his lawsuit against the league. What was your favorite part, like, working on? For me, I would say... A Oh, God, it's so hard. Uh, so I put to another part of the structure of the book, which you asked about earlier. So we have those big dynasties that we focus on, the major events and, and sort of the history of the game. But it's called Basketball, a love story. And every interview begins with the interviewer, whether it was Dan Clores, did most of the interviews, the director uh, and our co-author. But he also, for when he couldn't be available or when it made more sense, he had other really legendary NBA reporters, Bob Ryan, Jackie, Henry, uh, Henry Abbott, uh, Pablo Torre did the Iverson in, in, interview. So, he, so there, uh, but no matter who did the interview, every interview begins with the question, how did you fall in love with the game of basketball and who did you idolize growing up? So we had every single person in this book talking about growing up playing the game and their dreams and loving the sport. And that stuff was so powerful. So what we, we used that sort of, in smaller, I don't know, the mini chapters, however you want to describe them, to explain, you know, to, to sort of give it a little bit of this constant thread of, of that emotional side of the game. And I loved that stuff. That stuff was so powerful to me. Bernard King talking about working on his game and what it feels like to go out in the middle of the night and just shoot. And, you know, from, from all the guys from New York who were talking about playing in playgrounds and kind of stuff that, that felt familiar to me, then going to all these guys like Don Nelson and, and, and uh, Bill Bradley, the guys who grew up in the Midwest and in Indiana, and they're talking about shooting on the sides of a barn. And just it was so powerful to, to – I mean, it, it doesn't – it shouldn't really surprise you to see 
the people who've built the game and who who've devoted their lives to it in a greater way than probably anyone else have feeling that way about it. But it's still for someone who, of course, never achieved anything on the same level as a player or really any anything <laughs> uh, to to see that they feel that same passion, that same love, and that, that man, I, I like some of those same things. It's like it's coming straight out of me, but it's coming out of Larry Brown's mouth. And it's just amazing. I, I love doing that stuff. It really there's stuff in there that like brings tears to your eyes sometimes. And Magic Johnson, and we we chose Magic for a reason to be. He's the first and last word in the book. That was one of my last questions. Look at this. Why is wait where is it? Why was Magic Johnson the first person in the book and the last? One, I mean, look, there are two answers. There's a practical answer. He had a couple of great quotes. You know, <laughs> you, if he if he didn't give those lines, he wouldn't be the first and last. <laughs> but at the the other side of it is that. What he means to the sport, what if you're talking about the joy, the expression, the the power of basketball, he's one of the people, along with Larry Bird and then Michael Jordan, kind of credited with with making the modern NBA popular and bringing. He's he's just he he's one of the handful of people who you could consider the heart and soul of the game, and the way and and especially as a player, his passing, his vision, the way that he brought joy to everyone around him while winning and being just a killer on the court too uh he just felt right and that last that last quote of his where he's talking about creating a shot for your teammate seeing him score that's basketball that just felt perfect i love the fact that you just said we all relate i didn't make it to the nba i don't know if you knew that i don't know if you knew <laughs> I, I didn't make it but i think it was coach k and I, ho I hope i'm not wrong i never want to give him credit but it was coach <laughs> k who says the reason you always play basketball you never lose when you're by yourself and how many times Rick, we both grew up in new york when they mentioned, I think Isaiah Thomas might have said it, he would shovel snow off the court. I did that. I grew up. We shoveled the snow. We played outside. It was freezing out. You didn't know it was cold out, and I never lost. Every time I get fouled, the N1, tip off at the garden, like you play these games. As I'm reading Kevin Durant saying this, I'm like, I did the same exact thing. And as you're going through it, you're like, they lit, obviously they're way more talented than I did, but they have such a young passion for the game. It wasn't like, yeah, I've been playing this. I'm this. They love it so much, and it made me love it even more. Yeah. Like, I loved it. And you know what I, I like, too, about the book that surprised me? You mentioned the Lakers-Celtics dynasty. When I saw that chapter, I said, oh, this has been done so many times. And yet you're reading it. It's giving you so much other stuff, and you're hearing it from the players. The Kevin McHale clothesline, uh, uh, Kurt Rambis goes down, and you're hearing the players talk about it, and it brings you to that fucking moment. It brings you right to that moment. And Bird is like, I don't even think he meant to do it. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> it was so awesome in the book. I, I just loved everything about that book. It's, and, and that was what, it, you know, we, we had the same feeling putting it together. Oh, are we playing the hits too much? Is this too well known? But in a book, it's hard to just focus on the most the, the most unknown stuff. We tried to sort of squeeze it in in the right places. Like, I love a little detail in there where Calvin Murphy mentions that he was a national champion baton twirler. Now, you, you talk about something that I went and looked. I looked that up immediately. You go on YouTube. He is the, he, he's competing in the national <laughs> championships. ESPN put it on. Young Jim Lampley is there announcing it. It is really? a ridiculous. Like, there was more details that I couldn't quite fit in the book about Calvin Murphy where he's talking about – he liked he he the reason he went to Niagara for college was because they made a deal with the Buffalo Bills down the road that he could go perform at halftime. He could do do, do his baton routine there. And when he was with the Rockets, he 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 insisted sometimes on coming out and doing the baton routine <laughs> at the, the middle of the games that he's playing in. It was amazing. And at the same time, this is a guy 
who claims to have been 17-0 in NBA fights. One of the meanest, <laughs> toughest guys in the history. Him and Al Adels are like the two most <laughs> don't ever fight them guys in <laughs> NBA history. And he's also, I love Torlin the Baton. What can I say? I mean, some of that stuff is amazing, man. Um, and I definitely got to look up that video. <laughs> no, I'm going to look it up. And the ABA... I actually have that book. Uh, I forgot what Loose this balls. Be. Yes, I have. It. I never read it by Pluto. Pluto read it, right? It, so that's set up in the same format. It's also the oral history style, and you got it. it, it like, I have it, and the ABA chapters you guys did. You don't realize what the ABA did, and who was the brothers with the greatest TV deal? <laughs> the Silna brothers. Oh my God! Like, from the Spirits of St. Louis. I'm gonna introduce yourself first of all. Uh, I'm. Mel. I'm Ahmed Kasana, aka Mel East, is my gamer tag, and I. Uh, play in the NBA 2K League. He's a professional player. He, yeah. He, actually, he has a contract with the NBA, so he, he made it to the NBA. <laughs> so so tell me about the, the ABA stuff. So, well, so we talked, we just mentioned the Silna brothers. They were two guys who love, you know, so the, the ABA in general, the whole idea of, of the league were these owners who were trying to sort of back-end their way into the NBA. They figured, all right, we'll start up this competitor league because there was uh, – was it the AFL, a football league, had done this AFL, a few yeah. years right before the, the ABA started up. And it was basically like, we're going to create a competitor league, stir up enough shit, basically, to get the NBA to say, we don't want to compete with these guys anymore, let's just bring them in. So it was sort of instead of paying the franchise fee to get a new team, this was a cheaper way to get an NBA franchise. Uh, and so they were all hustlers. And these guys, <laughs> the Silnas... When it, at, the end of the, at the end of the run, about almost 10 years, a decade of ABA, they owned the Spirits of St. Louis. And that was a team, that, that, ch that chapter in Loose Balls is amazing. Bob Costas was the announcer for that team. Okay. That's how his wow. broadcast career began. And it had bad news, Marvin Barnes on it. It had Maurice Lucas on it. This was a, this was a talented squad, but they're also just a mess. Um, <laughs> and so... The NBA, when it came time to settle and, and, and bring in some of the ABA teams, the, the NBA still kind of was treating the ABA like dirt. They said, look, we don't really care. You're all garbage anyway. We'll take four of you. you there's, there's seven of you now. We'll take four teams. You guys figure it out. And so the, St. Louis, the, St. the Spirits of St. Louis didn't make the cut. They wanted to, but they didn't. And so they, But they wanted to remain in the league, and they cut a deal. They said – Okay, we'll, 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 you can buy us out. But what we want is one-seventh of all the broadcast revenue from the, remain, the ABA teams that do make it in. So that was the Spurs, the Nets, the Nuggets, and the Pacers. We want one-seventh of that broadcast revenue into perpetuity. This is 1976. There, there is basically no broadcast deal. There's no money coming in. So that the NBA people are like, all right, you want, you know, you want <laughs> one-seventh of nothing? You could have one-seventh of nothing. Of course, what happens, the league takes off. All of a sudden, these, con the, 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 these broadcast <laughs> deals are worth <laughs> multiple millions of dollars. They get one-seventh of the broadcast money from four different franchises. So they basically are getting the broadcast money of more than half of a franchise themselves for doing nothing. And they kept getting it every year until I think they, they finally settled with the NBA in 2014 or 20, like right before David Stern stepped down. It was like the last thing he wanted. He was not going to leave, like <laughs> over his dead body was this going to continue. So the NBA somehow bought them out eventually. But he said, Stern has a great line in there, how every year 
he would get a big case of wine from the Silner brothers. I mean, thank you so much for this deal, David. I mean, then it really was the best deal in in the in the history of sports. I mean, they did nothing and got paid out the ass. Yeah. Whenever I heard about the NBA, uh, the <coughs> ABA, I always thought it was just a very a, comp- a competitive league who went head to toe with the NBA, which it did a little bit. But you didn't realize that they weren't making a ton of money. That plays brought guns to the arena. I didn't know that it was kind of like this dysfunctional league that people liked. But I never knew that that it was kind of like, kind of like this, you know, a stepchild uh, kind of um, league. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, the only things that really emerged in the popular memory are what Dr. J, David Thompson, George Gervin. You see a few highlights: the red, white, and blue ball, the three-point line, the three-point line. But when you look, when you really get to read about it, and this is in loose balls, and and we got sort of like the the shorter version of it into our book, it's. They, they set the blueprint for a lot of what we think of as the modern NBA because if you looked at the, the NBA in the late 60s when, when the ABA started up, there still were some unspoken racial quotas. They did not like to have more than three or four black players on the court at the same time. It was a slower game than it needed to be. It was still a very walk the ball up the floor, throw it into the big man, play through the post, and – the ABA, because they had to compete and be different and just really accept anyone, anything that would work, they'd throw anything <laughs> at the wall. They said, well, we don't have to play that way. We don't need quotas. We have these great athletes. Let these guys grow out their afros, wear chains on the floor, be crazy, get in fights, get out a three-point line. Anything that might make the game more exciting, they, had to, they, they would try because they didn't have a TV contract. They had to try and draw, like, fans to the stadium. I mean, some of the stories about the weird halftime, I mean, they were responsible for dance teams. And Miami was the the Miami Floridians in the ABA <laughs> were like the first teams to, 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 to franchise to send people, girls out there into the crowds basically trying to shake their asses yeah. to get someone to show up. Yeah, they weren't really even cheer girls. They would come out there sitting in bikinis just <laughs> jumping up and down. And the ABA made the uh, slam dunk contest. Like, yeah. they really contributed a ton to the NBA. And because... They started, people realized that they, they exposed a different kind of game that we now think of as the way basketball should be played, the free-flowing side of it, the athleticism. Really what, what you know, and the basketball at the highest level had, it became and still is uh, mostly a black sport. And the, the ABA put it right out in front and didn't try and hide it or dilute it in any way and said, we have these amazing athletes. We can get Connie Hawkins because he was banned from the NBA at the beginning of his ABA we'll career. We'll take him. <laughs> Yo, get this guy in. He's one of the greatest players of all time. It's a crime to not let him play. Uh, players who, they, they created what, what's now one and done or prep to pro or all that stuff because Spencer Haywood, before then, the, the, the NBA's rule was a player could not be drafted. Well, he could be drafted, but he couldn't enter the league until four years after high school. So you either spend four years in college or you hang out somewhere until, and hope that you get in later. So th- there were players like Spencer Haywood who didn't want to, to do that. And so he, after his second year I- at the University of Detroit, and he was an Olympic gold medalist champion, they say, hey, Spencer, you want to come play with us? That's great. Come on down. Uh, and, they, and they created what they called you know, the hardship rule, um, uh, which was just kind of BS. Yeah, I mean, they, they were making up rules as they went along. Um, but at the same time, they knew they could because it, it still the, the Constitution existed and, and – if it came to an antitrust level, you you still can't you can't tell someone they don't an adult they don't have a right to make a living. 
So the NBA wasn't going to uh, fight them on this. And it was some, so it was another way they ended up getting players coming to the ABA because they didn't want to wait four years to go to the NBA. So they got Spencer Haywood that way. George Gervin started in the, in, in the ABA because of that. And it was, it was just a, a thing where they didn't want to uh, – these some, you know, sometimes a guy got like George Gervin got his, – his college team was, was basically you – know, his coach there was – he didn't get along with him. It wasn't going well. And, he, and it was going to ruin his career if he stayed there. So he, went, he was able to get his career jumpstart in the ABA. Man, his first team in the ABA – he was on the same team as Dr. J in Virginia, the Virginia Squires. <laughs> Dr. J, George Gervin, and Charlie Scott, the, the great New York yeah. player for, who was the first uh, first African-American scholarship athlete at, at Carolina and, you know, was an NBA all-star. Not quite the all-time great that the, the other guys were, but that was like – you think. Uh, and the amazing thing was they <laughs> said no one came to any of those games in Virginia. The only healthy teams in the ABA were Indiana, Kentucky, Kentucky. Denver, basically, and, and, and they were sort of – keeping the league alive with these other guys who just sort of, they show up and no one's there. I like, well, I don't want to say I like, that sounds ridiculous. There was a racial mm. undertone in the book. And it's it's ironic that in the beginning, there were times they went down there, Bill Russell's like, you can't come in this hotel, you're black. And now the NBA is complete, it's basically all African Americans. Yeah. And I noticed the racial overtone and I'm like, oh, I hope it's the book's not very racial about it. But then you realize it has to be. Yeah. They dealt with so much shit in every aspect. There was a quota, you mentioned it before, of how many black people can be on a basketball team. Right. It was three or four, right? It was, so, I mean, it started off as two because it's like, okay, we have one guy and he deserves a roommate. Like, yeah. imagine that. It's unbelievable. And then, okay, three. And credit to Red Auerbach with the Celtics, who was the first coach in the NBA to start uh, an all-black starting five and said, because to him, he did not care. He wanted to win, right. baby. I'm gonna, I'd rather beat you. And, and, if, and, and this is in Boston, which we, I, don't, I don't know what everyone here thinks about Boston, but <laughs> we, we don't heard. think of it as the most, <laughs> the most enlightened town even today, and it wasn't that. I mean, you look at, I mean, you, you know, the, the real stories with, with Bill Russell, people broke into his house and, and shat in it, in his bed. I mean, he they faced terrible racism in those. And so you couldn't, yeah, and I think that was a, it, there's a part early in the book that sort of sets the tone for that that really shows what that first generation, or not the first generation, but that, that the Bill Russell, Oscar Robertson generation of, of players faced both coming up and then when they went on to, to play in the league. And there's some really powerful stuff. And I think it works. It doesn't come off as preachy because this is just people explaining the things they went through. And, and there aren't, I mean, anyone... Any reader who's going to read that and not empathize with that, not not understand those struggles, I, I I don't know what to say to you. Like it's there's no there's no way to read the stories of of a guy like Cleo Hill, who was the a, the player who I'd never really knew anything about, who was who played uh, in at the at, in the H, you know historically black college universities, um, um, North Carolina A and T, the same one as um as uh, oh I'm sorry Winston State Winston Salem State, the same one as Earl of Pearl Monroe, he played there. And Billy Packer, who was playing at uh, uh, Wake Forest at the time, in the same town, also in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, goes down to see him play. And he's like, this guy's better than anybody in the entire ACC. And Hill got to the NBA, but he landed on the Hawks. And at the time, St. Louis was not was a, was a pretty racist town, and they, they, they just didn't want – and he – Hill was the top scorer in the preseason as a rookie, and they said <laughs> we don't, we can't have this, and so they froze him out. And it kind of, it never, it they, they they said that he never really recovered. It sort of broke him mentally, and and you hear stories of John Thompson. I think John Thompson, the Georgetown coach, 
is one of the most powerful voices in that chapter because he says some stuff that that is really just cuts to the heart of humanity. He's like he says the biggest, the sort of the biggest myth in America is is the idea of equality because nobody wants. I, as a competitor, he's like I don't want to be equal to you. I want to be better than you. Yeah. And I and no and and it's and it's against human nature for anyone who is in an elevated position, fairly or unfairly, to want. To, to help any lift anyone else up, even though it's the right thing to do. So it's sort of there's some hard truths in there, but it, it's it's an important part of the history. And it, it, what's great about it is that the NBA is now a leader in in sort of a lot of progressive issues and and has embraced the the culture of its players and 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 really done a lot. I mean, obviously, no no one's going to sit here and say that there aren't problems with race in America, but the NBA is sort of at the forefront of making things better, I think. And it's not that it's not going to fix everything on its own, but it's still, that's that's really one of the things that crosses over and reaches everyone. I like that you mentioned John Thompson because the Allen Iverson uh, chapter was powerful. It was only a few pages. Allen Iverson's mom went to John Thompson and goes, can you save my son's life? Like, I read that like three or four times. I'm like, we just look at it like, oh, AI is awesome. He's, he, w- he w- almost went to jail because that uh, bowling uh, bowling alley fight and his mom goes, "Can you save my son's life?" Like, that's powerful shit, right there, man. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah, um, Iverson. I, you know, that was uh, we that and so those that again, go, sort of going back to the early question about the structure of the book. There were, whenever there was something that we just couldn't quite get into one of the big chapters, the oral history chapters, but we knew was too important to to leave out of the book. That's when you see those little three to four page written through parts like we have on Allen Iverson. There's one that focuses solely on Oscar Robertson, um, the Spurs. There's a fun one on the Spurs later on because, you know, they, they did this classic Spurs thing and, like, people come to them and say, hey, we want to do interviews with you about the history of the franchise, and they're like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we weren't able to use a lot of their voices in the same way, but at, at least they deserve that much because of what they what they mean to the game in the last 10 years. Um, and – the one with Iverson was really his 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 interview is powerful. I mean, there's some stuff he he describes the way he plays the game in this really powerful, intuitive way. He he says, you know, he basically he's got one line. It's like, you know, you to to succeed the way I did, especially at his size, you need to basically be able to look into someone's eyes and and feel like I'm I'm gonna rip this man limb from limb. Like it's he, so intense. He's, yeah, his intensity. Uh, that he brought. I mean, you could see the way he played, but it, the way he talks about it is really raw. And it's not, you know, it's interesting. You hear players talk about the game in different ways. You got the Rick Berries and the the Bernard Kings, who were super, almost ob- obsessive compulsive about their approach to the game. Where that, like Bernard King can tell you about how he broke the court down into nine different scoring zones, and he had. You know, he, he, he had five different counters for every different way that he expected a defender to play him. And if he knew he could get to this shot here, he was going to score on you no matter what. So you got these guys who break it down like that. Then you get the guys like Iverson who are just so in, instinctive and, and just see the game as like, no, I like I, 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 I pulled the ball. He's like, he's talking about the crossover on yep. Jordan. I pulled the ball up. And he went for it, and so I went the other way. Like, it's that simple. I, I wasn't thinking about Mike. I was just thinking about, <laughs> you know, getting him. Was it difficult while writing the book – you didn't do any face-to-face interviews. You just have the words on paper. Was that a little difficult? Sure. Um, one of the challenges – so when you do these oral histories in book or magazine form, 
a lot of the time, if you start with the idea that you're going to do, uh, it's going to be published in print, there's some little tricks you use to make it flow. You are almost writing parts of the book while you're, while you're doing the interview. So you're kind of asking a, a couple leading questions to try and fill in some of the blanks about the, the narrative. So, so then what happened in the next game okay. and after that? So, so you kind of get the guy, you make sure that you get the voices saying the, the parts of the story that you need to put in there. But these interviews weren't conducted for, with that in mind. They were conducted with a documentary film in mind. And in a film, you, can, you have a lot more ways to add to the story. You got music, you got highlights, you can bring in archival footage of, of an announcer setting up the, the situation for a game. So there were parts where we had to get pretty creative in how we stacked the, the, the quotes in ways that still told the story because we didn't have a full, I mean, we like, I think, we didn't always have every single bit of context that we wanted. And, and we also added a bunch of stuff that, you know, if you have to, you'll just put in a little four sentences in italics to explain where we are in the story and then pick it up. But I try to avoid that whenever possible because really the power of the book is the way that it's told in the voices of everyone. And, and as much as you can keep that going steadily without interjecting any of the author's voice, I, I feel like it works better that way. As much as you loved having everything in front of you, how bad did you to want to? Just, no, no. Did you want to just sit there with a few, a few of the players, and just you oh. wanted to conduct the interviews? Give me the two, three guys that you would have loved to just sit down with, had a few beers with for an hour. Of course, man. I mean, it would be amazing to to have conducted these interviews. Um, one that I almost got to do because it was a follow up, uh, because he wasn't, he's not in the film, is Scotty Pippen, uh, but because. Uh, Jackie, of course, is on the jump with him fairly regularly, and we wanted to beef up the Michael Jordan chapter a little bit. We wanted to get Scotty, and for a while it sounded like because I was in L.A. and he lives out there, I was going to go do the interview with him, but he was hard to nail down, and then Jackie kind of just did it one time when they were both on set. Like She literally, after they filmed the jump, grabbed some some napkins and was like all right scotty i'm asking you these questions and you're going to answer them and and we got it so that and i love him so i he was i mean he's he's he might be my favorite player of all time just the way really yeah man um what you know his skill set the the defense uh, it was the kind of player i wanted to be um and it was just yeah and just how you know the He's so graceful the way he moved. I I, I really love I love I love I love Scotty. Um, so that one, um, I think I mean just be reading his his transcript, John Thompson, because it just to be in his presence and kind of absorb some of that wisdom. You know, some of those old timers like him and uh, Larry Brown. I think has he has one of my favorite quotes in the book, and that goes back to like the love of the game. Um, and he it's where he's talking about the feeling of winning a championship. And he said that, you know, Chuck Daly, the deceased uh, former, you know, champion head coach of the Pistons and the Dream Team, told him once that you're not going to, it's not going to hit you right away what it, uh, what it means to win this championship. But one day in a couple of years, you're just going to be driving somewhere and all of a sudden you'll think about it and you're going to get a big-ass stupid smile on your face. And the guy in the car, uh, and the guy next to you in the road is going to look over and be like, what the hell is that idiot laughing about? <laughs> and just, you know, obviously, none of us have won NBA championships or NCAA championships. I mean, you're an honor, honorary Kentucky Wildcats. Of course, you got a couple. You, know that, you got yes. a couple of rings. I do. Um, <laughs> but 
none of us have have won at that level. Actually, you you're clo- you may you may be close to winning at that level in in two K. Oh uh, yeah, no, it's definitely something. Uh, you know what's crazy? The the New York Knicks actually won the championship the first season in our league. Uh, it's, since it's a brand. That's new the league. only time the Knicks are ever gonna win a league. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. We are. <laughs> exactly. So growing up a Knicks fan, you know, like y- you always uh want you always wanted to see a team just in general a championship team, and that and that's what actually helped our league. Uh, grow as well when they won the championship the New York media rallied behind it they uh, went on channel 7 they did a bunch of things like that so it's in general just championships uh, it, you can't you can't describe it and, uh, and it's an honor to be here with you because you, you've been around these guys and thank you thank and oh Ray <laughs> you've been around you've been around Tony Delk <laughs> growing up you know like uh, playing 2K as well like you play with these legends and now that the fact that you're telling the stories behind it like about AI and stuff like that I grew up loving AI Scotty Pippen as well as well as one of my favorite players. When I play in this league, I'm known as one of the best defensive players, so I try to mold my game after Scotty. So it's crazy how, like, the old school days and now how technology and stuff like that has advanced and how that game of basketball has grown, not only from the real-life court to the digital side as well. Yeah, uh, and, and so basically, the, the, and the other thing I was, I was thinking about with, with Larry Brown and that quote is that, so, yeah, I, I never won on that level, but, but I don't need to have won on that level to have felt that. There are times I find myself doing the same exact thing, thinking about sometime I just locked somebody up in a pickup game. Like, I, I, like my, my, my mind is a steel trap of all of my basketball memories. And it's just like I – so that, that feeling of, man, you know, we shared that together, and it's like – it's weird. There are probably guys out there who I've played ball with a bunch of times, whether in college or in leagues or going back to high school – I may not even I, I may not even ever known their names, but I can tell you so much about them, and I just and like I, I I feel close to them in this crazy way, even though I don't even know them, and that's that's one of those amazing things. Here's why you're a better man than me. If I was like if they gave me these books, I'm like, listen, we gotta do some follow ups on who everyone. I would have flew all over the country, all over the world, just to do follow ups, just to hang out with some of these people. Well, shoot, if they had let me, I would have done the same. Thing. <laughs> I mean, that's a, uh, let me tell you, you don't really get a second crack at Charles Barkley very often. In le- I mean, that was really one of the true privileges of working with Jackie because if they had let, if I had been the only person on this book, it would have been far less likely that I'm going to get a follow-up interview. Jackie, because of her status in the league and every and her all of her accomplishments and everything, and, and also just the way that every the respect she has. You know, she is really that's one of the amazing things of working with her is seeing the way that people look up to her. Men, women, players, executives—just the the way she carries herself. People really, she in a lot of ways is 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 a is a real leader in in that community. Um, And so when she asks for something, a lot of the time people say sure, even if it's even if it's a it's an inconvenience to them or they wouldn't necessarily do it for many other people. And she's not doing it in sort of a twist anybody's elbow way. It's like, hey, I would really appreciate this, and they want to do something for her. So she was able to get extra interviews with Scotty, and she actually went and did a, a follow-up interview with Larry Bird for the book and did uh, uh, and, and called up Robert Parrish, and got and he has some great quotes in there. So it's that. And, yeah, I, I don't think I was going to – if I had tried the same thing, I'd call up, hey, could I talk to Robert Parrish? <laughs> maybe he says yes, but uh, maybe not. What games – I said I went back and watched a lot of games. Was there any games or clips – while you're reading this, that you went back and watched. Yes, I'll tell you this, and I, I, I didn't. I'll admit, I didn't know anything about this. The 1984 U.S. Olympic team that Bob Knight coached and Michael Jordan played on with Steve Alford, for some reason, um, and also <laughs> Michael, and also uh, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen. <laughs> um, 
that team had an exhibition schedule against NBA players. They played nine games before they went to I forget what eighty four was in Seoul. Which uh, one? Uh, no, LA, 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 LA. Eighty four is LA. Anyway, so they played nine games against NBA teams, and they're exhibitions. So of course the NBA guys at first are not taking it that seriously. Who really cares? It's not a big deal. But they went nine and zero against NBA squads, um, and by you know after by the time the NBA players are down zero four in that, they started getting real serious, and the 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 league. The Players Association, Oscar Robertson, who was coaching that, that, that selection, they started calling up some people and saying, hey, Isaiah, hey, Larry, <laughs> we're going to need you to try and beat these guys because we, we, we're getting embarrassed out here. Um, and still, they just kept winning. And reading Billy Packer in the book tells it's probably the longest single quote in the book. It runs an entire page. And it's, it, it's based around Michael Jordan and Bob Knight. And it starts with Bob Knight telling – <laughs> telling Billy Packer when he's selecting the 84 Olympic team, hey, I don't think, uh, I, don't think I want Jordan on my team. I got to take him because he's such a star. But what am I going to do with a, with a two-guard who can't shoot? <laughs> Bob Knight is the don't, Please don't blame me, but this is Bob Knight talking. Um, <laughs> and so he gets him on the team, and they start going through practices. And, he che- and, and Billy Packer checks in with him again. He's like, how's it going? He's like, well, Jordan's okay. He's, he's, he still can't shoot. I'm not crazy about his skills, but the guy competes. He is a foxhole guy. You know, I'd go to war with him any day. They start winning these games against the pros, and there's one game where the NBA squad just said, screw it. We're going to beat the hell out of these kids. You know, they, 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 they're, they're up five games to nothing on us. Let's, let's foul them every time they go to the basket. And there's, there's a play in that game where uh, Mike Dunleavy Sr. on the NBA team does it basically commits a flagrant foul on Michael Jordan. Of course, back then it was just like a regular foul. <laughs> um, Jordan has to go out of the game. He's bleeding. He gets st- he gets he gets not stitches, but he gets patched up, um, and comes back and destroys the NBA guys, and they win that game. And basically, by the end of that exhibition run, Bob Knight calls up Billy Packer and says. He's going to be the greatest player of all time so Unbe- like in nine games. And I went and looked up. I watched as many of those as I could find. Even Some of them only have clips, but I watched as much of that. And it is amazing. And it's also crazy because you think of it now with the way the college game has changed where it's you know, players of Michael Jordan's caliber are not staying three years in the, in, in, at UNC before they turn pro. And every year, you know, they, 2012, could Kentucky beat the Sixers? And everyone would be like, that's crazy. No college team's ever going to beat a pro team. These are professional basketball players. Well, you know, only in 1984, we saw a bunch of co- uh, amateur players go 9-0 and against some of the best players in the NBA, which is nuts. You brought up Jordan, and I think in one of your other ones, I actually didn't notice it until I looked you up and it was a quote or something. Why didn't Jordan want to contribute to the book? I don't know for sure. Um, and they and and Jordan and his people were very helpful in setting up some of the Bulls interviews and and I think that there was an intention. So the way I and I don't I, this is not from personal experience. This is kind of from reading and from some of the stories I've heard from Jackie and sort of the way that Jordan got involved with the Dream Team, which is told in the book. It seems like his mo back th- is to um, he want he he he'll he'll be there 
but he's going to be the last one in. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's sort of his status. And, and I, I mean, I appreciate that. I think he deserves that. Yeah. Um, so I th- my guess is that we were on track to if we had kept going along, at the end, all of a sudden, it would have been, you know, the heavens open up and, and, and God himself, Michael Jordan, yeah. walks, or the goat himself, Michael <laughs> Jordan, you know, walks down and, and finally blesses you with the interview. I think that was going to happen. But in between, he ended up signing a deal with Netflix and ESPN to do his own 10-hour documentary. So I think at that point, just for business reasons, they decided to keep all the good stuff at home. Um, And and I think that's the the, the old – but they were very supportive of the project, and it was not like – of course – uh, of course, we're disappointed. I mean, shoot, you, you, any, if you were trying to do a, a big basketball project, you want as much Michael Jordan in there. You would love to have his voice uh, in the book. But uh, it's understandable, and I think the book comes out pretty well even without it. And, and the Jordan chapter I was really happy with. I put that one together, and even the, the number of people talking around him, Doug Collins, Steve Kerr, Pippen, Phil, you know, all of those players discussing him and coaches and, and the media talking about him. It, it, there's so much my, and, and the business stuff, the shoe stuff. We got his agent, David Falk, in there. All that stuff. That, that There's so much Michael Jordan legend and lore out there that it, it, I think the book survived without him. You sit down with Jordan. One question you ask him. Oh, man. I want one. One question. You sit down. Mike, is not, you know, he's not going to acknowledge you. Right. But the last thing is like, go. Go with your one question, kid. What's the one question you ask MJ? Yeah, that's um. Sorry, uh, I'm thinking. Uh, no, as I as I just asked him, I'm like, I wouldn't even know what I would ask him. I wouldn't know. I would be rattled. Yeah. <laughs> what would you ask him? Let me hear. I would ask him. Um. Like I would ask him about this area. I would, I would ask him like, how would do you think? Uh, like your game would. How would it translate in this type of era now? Like especially with Golden State. Like, do you think your team could beat Golden State? That 97, I think he would say he could probably beat them. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, of course he would say that. I mean, who? I mean, even <laughs> even even people who have no business saying yeah. that will say. You know, <laughs> and and that's. I mean, if you're the best of your time, there's no reason for you to to think that you know today's players would necessarily beat you, even if they probably they probably would. You never mm-hmm. know. I don't think that's necessarily the case with Jordan, but other guys. Um, you know, I I I would ask him who he who he had the hardest time with. You know, who was who really was his greatest competitor because he would never show it back then. You would you would never know, right? That's not he does not give credit to, to anyone, right? He's he's there to beat you. And he's not gonna be like, Oh man, he's really good. He, he, man, that guy is something else. I wanna know who really gave him the most trouble and if it was you know, if it is somebody who he thought was great, did he was it was it Drexler? Was it the people that the media sort of elevated at the time the other top players or was it somebody we never heard of? I mean, there are always rumors about how Vernon Maxwell or, or these other guys were just like the toughest, the toughest matchups for Jordan because they were crazy. They didn't give a, they didn't give a shit and they were and they were great athletes. You know, so I, I, I'd want to know about some of the, the, the biggest challenges he faced like against certain players. I'll tell you my cool Jordan story. Not that I know him. I had Jack Goose Gibbons on. He was a famous player for Kentucky. And uh, he's a neighbor on five or six years ago. He's in Atlantic City. And uh, Jordan was there at the high rollers table. And he looks up and he sees Jordan there. He's like, I'm not going to go acknowledge Michael. It's Michael Jordan. And uh, someone from Jordan's camp walk over and goes, Mr. Gibbons, uh, Michael wants to speak to you. He said, all right. So Goose went over there. Goose won a championship with Kentucky in 78. He goes over there. 
Jordan goes, hey, Goose, can I talk to you? They have a drink, and he goes, I got to tell you a true story. And Goose is like, this is the first time he's like, I'm friends with Shaq. I'm friends with I never talked to Jordan. He said, Jordan told him, after you beat Duke in 78, I went in my backyard, and I tried to become lefty. And I shot lefty to try to be like you, Goose. And Goose is like, you're Michael Jordan. He's like, yeah, Goose, I, I, I really tried to be like you. And Goose said, are you kidding? Gets a picture with him, and Goose goes, it's the first time in my life that I, I was nervous to ask someone for an autograph. And he didn't ask Jordan for an autograph. I go, Goose, he just complimented you. And Goose like, yeah, I couldn't do it. I'm an athlete. I couldn't do it. Is that unbelievable? Wow, that's crazy. I mean, and, and Michael Thompson, who, of course, you know, was a great NBA yeah. player and career cut short through because of drug problems, has a similar story about, you know, Mike, Mike and, and Jordan ta- has talked about it a bunch of times how he modeled parts of his game mm-hmm. on <coughs> Michael Thompson. And just the, the, the experience that Thompson had as a retired player where Jordan would bring him in and, and, and tell young kids when he was doing camps and stuff, this is the guy that I looked up to and what that meant to him and the way that everyone would change the way they looked at him as a retired player who maybe didn't really know what he had done and what, how good he was. When, when, when Jordan says, this is someone I looked up to, that's, that's unbelievable. I don't know what that feels like. The book covers everything up until the Golden State Warriors. Yeah. What do you think, because you're a big basketball guy, of the current state of the NBA now? I think the NBA is great. Um, the the as in the hype around it, I don't always need. You know, I have a little bit of that old school. Like I, I came to the sport because I played it because I it was the only thing I I loved doing when I was a kid, um, and I think it's great for the league and for the growth of the the sport overall. The way that they've managed to turn it into something bigger than just something for people for than than people who grew up playing and people who sort of have that more into that sort of lived connection with the sport. But sometimes it gets a, I, it's too overboard for me. Like I, I have a hard time relating to the way that a lot of fans, it seems like today, look at the NBA almost as a soap opera, as a, as a story that they follow the same way as it has characters like Game of Thrones. Like it's, yeah, it's entertaining. And of course the stories around the players and the hijinks and all that stuff is funny, but it still feels to me. It's like I get a. There's sometimes where I get a little bit of that old man get off my lawn stuff about man. The, the game should still be the focus. The game is the game. Um, but it, man, you can't really argue with it because of how successful it is. I mean, the, the league is blowing up. There's so many people. The interest in it is is amazing. The players, the skill level is inc- incredible. I, I I do have I I feel like I have n- nothing. Ag- against the way the game is played today but I don't like how today's because we're we're so we love the game so much today a lot of the time when we look back at earlier eras we say oh it's not as good or that was slow or these these the, man they used to post up that sucks there's nothing I mean I I I grew up the, the the teams that I watched at the height of loving you know just like you know teenager loving basketball watching as much as I could get were a lot of those ugly ass Knicks teams in the nineties. I don't care. Like I love that. I was proud of that team. Right, right. That, like there, there are different ways to play basketball and win. And they just because it, the way they did it, you know, twenty years ago or forty years ago doesn't look like the way they do it now doesn't mean the way they did it then is any worse. I'm gonna be that one asshole and critique the book. That everyone's gonna say this and it's not even a real bad critique. The international section was, like, it was gripping. I'm like, oh, my God. I went back and watched Dirk's first few games, Olajuwon playing at Houston. Why no Matumbo? There was no Matumbo and no Rick Smiths. Those are two guys I thought, no, I'm like, 
Yeah, no Rick Smith. Listen, big, tall, white dude from, from Amsterdam. And then no Matumbo. I was very surprised with no Matumbo. And that was, it's not a critique. It's not me being negative. I'm like, oh, I love Matumbo with the old Nuggets 55 jersey. I was surprised he wasn't in it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, look, there are they're obviously, you can't, there are obviously people who would be great to have in there. Voices that would uh, are as worthy, or someone like Matumbo really is an important voice when you talk about the international game in the NBA. I, I don't I, I wasn't I got sort of brought into the process after the majority of the interviews were done. So it was sort of for me it's like I'm I, I got this amazing cache of interviews that I'm that and it's my job to go through them and, and put make a book out of them. So I, I, I honestly don't I don't have an answer for the Matumbo thing. It would be great. I don't I don't disagree at all. I thought let me and I wanted I'm curious. This is not a this both because we ended up being more NBA focused than, than anything else. You know, we we do our best to also include nods to uh, the women's game mm-hmm. and the college game, but and uh, and in addition to that, this is not a very Kentucky friendly book. I mean, we got some rough things about of course. Adolph, Adolph Ruff, Ruff in yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, as as a Kentucky guy, were you you know are you were you like damn man, why are they doing Adolph like that? So one of my uh, radio idols and like a guy I really look up to, his name's uh, Dick Gabriel. Big Blue Insider on a WLAP in Kentucky. Just my friendship with Cameron Mills led me to Dick Gabriel. He's does a radio show. He's like the Mike Francesa down there. He's he's the goat down there in Kentucky. He did a documentary on Adolph Rupp, and uh, you always hear the racial things about Rupp that he uh, with this and that, and you know the that that famous story. I've heard the story before when Adolph Rupp was in who was the coach's room? John McClendon. And uh, he walked out and he goes, "Yeah, that was Adolph Rupp asking me advice, but he never wants to take advice from a black man." After reading that stuff about Rupp, I actually talked to Dick Gabriel, mm-hmm. and Gabriel's like, it's a lot of rumors. I've spoken. He's friends with the Rupp family. Not that it's not true. He said a lot of it was over-exaggerated, and through time, no one ever went back and backtracked it. It bothered me as such a Kentucky fan. When I go to Rupp Arena, everyone laughs. I kiss the floor in Rupp Arena. Like, Kentucky, you know, it's my, I told you, it's the reason my first wife left me was because the Yankees in Kentucky. I love Kentucky. It hurts reading that about Rupp. I didn't like it, but. You can't rewrite history. Yeah, and and I think that John again going back to sort of the wisdom of John Thompson has one of the most, I think, insightful takes on on Rupp and and the times. And that was just like, you didn't see forget forget Adolph Rupp in those days, especially in in a place like Kentucky. You did you did not see even even people with the, the purest hearts, the best motives. You know, you did not see white people. Sort of sticking their necks out like that for just because they'd be ostracized or they like he basically he, he put himself in the shoes of someone in that time and not saying that it's right or wrong but saying that why to anyone who's going to judge you know judge Adolf Rupp or whoever hey you know think about what you would do would you would you be strong enough to go against everything kind of around you because you know what's right even if you know it in your heart. That's it's a t- it's a lot to ask, and obviously there are great people throughout history who've done it, but the average man or woman on the street probably wasn't going to do that, and, and and I thought that was a really you know smart way. To, and and Rupp had a weird there's there, there there it's a it's a complicated story that I don't think we're ever going to know fully because there are those moments where he he reached out to John McClendon and and had relationships with 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 black coaches and 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 things like that, but then he, there are also these awful stories about the language he used it with with players and 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 of course you know not not uh, being one of the last 
major college programs to to accept black players. And, and also, too, not just defending Ruff, I never met the man, but also, you know, when someone says, oh, he's a racist, he did that, 20, 30 years go by, maybe he wasn't, but no one's going to come back and be like, hey, by the way, remember I said that stuff about Rupp? He really wasn't. So maybe people said in the heat of the moment, you don't know. Yeah. I don't know. No, I, I mean, it was, that I think that uh, hopefully the book does a decent job of, of showing just how complicated all those times were and that nothing was, nothing, you, you there were no easy decisions for anyone. And there were, you know, that, that even players like, you know, that, 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 Black players who were sort of tr blazing a trail in the '60s and '70s in the NBA would feel some almost like it, reading their, their their descriptions of guys like Charlie Scott or or John Thompson a little bit of uh, almost like survivor's guilt in that like they knew plenty of guys from that they grew up with in their neighborhoods that they played with in high school who they felt were as good as them but for one reason or another didn't end up in the NBA they're playing in some minor league somewhere they're playing the eastern league or the aba or something and and they weren't getting as much money and fame and as many opportunities and and this idea that you know that, that, that they they're these guys also yeah of course they're going to succeed at the highest level they can but they know that it's that, that there's something unfair even about them getting elevated as opposed to someone else they grew up with you get all these pages of books thousands and thousands of pages did you have to return them or did you keep some Oh hell no! I have it. I have the Google. I have the oh, Google really? Drive, man. Oh okay, okay. Um, oh my god! I, you know what? I sound like such an asshole now. I actually thought they got delivered like in. Oh my! I feel ridiculous. You're totally wrong. Okay, okay. Jackie asked for them. Okay, in, okay. And then and <laughs> oh. then when I she just thought I'm like they can fucking. Oh my god! <laughs> email. I'm like, wait, no. I'm not gonna lie. Right now, I really thought they came up with like ten like boxes, and they were like. <laughs> oh, I that exists ridiculous. too. There are okay. hard copies. <laughs> I and, and Jackie at first asked for those. And I think then they delivered them to her house up in Massachusetts, and she's like, "Uh-uh, <laughs> never mind. I give uh, this is not a good idea," and and went straight to the computer. I so when I started working on the book, I was back living in the Philippines for six months, and so it, it was actually like right, you know, a few months before two and two came out. So before I come back here and, and when we met for the last podcast, um, so there was no way they were gonna ship. A hundred pounds of paper <laughs> from New York to Manila. I don't. I, if that had come out of my my uh, my cut of the advance, I don't think I would have gotten it in advance. So uh, I'm glad we were able to do this electronically. Hey, you know what? We're gonna transition transition this into the Philippines a little bit. You're wearing a boxing shirt. Yeah. I want to talk about boxing into Pacquiao. You're a huge boxing guy. Yeah. Tyson Fury Wilder fight. Your thoughts going f and going forward with it. I was there in L.A. Um, You're so Hollywood. It's not even funny. You're so Hollywood. Okay. I mean, I whatever. I, I'm part of the <laughs> boxing media. What do you want? You I are. Cover, I cover fights. You do that podcast um, uh, with on CBS Sports with yeah. uh, Brian Campbell. It's called, I, in this corner. Yeah. Dude, you do a really good job. I listen to that. You do a it's, really uh, good job. It's, it's a crazy-ass podcast. I yeah. Mean, we're kind of like I – I, the thing I like about it is like we have as much fun with the sport as almost anybody. We have yeah. a lot of – it's – it can be a little hard to get into because we use so many obscure sound drops in there. Uh, but if you hang in there and you start to get to, you start to catch up with it, it could be a lot of fun. Um, that was, a, I mean, the tension throughout that entire fight because the whole time, I think Fury's outboxing him pretty clearly, but he's walking that tightrope. You know, you know that uh, as soon as anything lands, he's in trouble, and and it happened twice. Um, I scored it eight to four. For Tyson Fury, thought he did enough to win. That would have been a 114-112 score for Fury. Um, that's only one round off for a draw, so I can't really call it a robbery. But to me, it it was a pretty clear 
uh, decision, I thought. Uh, I think, and, and of course, and, and that's sort of, that's just the analysis side, the emotional side, the just the, the, the rush of that 12th round, the drama of, of seeing him go down and thinking, oh, there's no way in hell this man can get up from that. And then just uh, rolls over, sits up, and he's almost, after a few seconds, not even hurt. Like, he comes back and wins the rest of the round, kind of gets, get, you know, Wilder punches himself out a little bit, and then Fury's coming on like he might actually, he might get a knockdown to even it out. He didn't, of course, but the the tension in that fight, even though it was not, like, just slobber knocker banging all all night, the, just the, that's that's what's great about these Deontay Wilder fights is that he only, he's, he's such a fun, weird fighter because he's, He's technically not very good. No, he, he did the same thing with Ortiz. Yeah. Ortiz is beating him, and he just throws that one big haymaker and ends it. Yeah, he, he, he has such an equalizer, and it's just amazing to watch. It does not matter. You can beat him and all, all night long, but unless you knock him out, which hasn't happened, he hasn't even been down, unless you stop him, he's probably going to catch up to you eventually. And, and while I think Fury did enough to win that one, uh, you know, it's... It, if they make a rematch, that'd be great. If the, I kind of think, honestly, I think that they're both, right now, they're both saying that they want the rematch. They're like, oh, no, forget forget Anthony Joshua, the, the champion in the U.K. who has three of the four title belts. Forget him, who's probably the biggest moneymaker in the sport mm-hmm. up there with Canelo, who's fighting tonight. Um, it's either so, so they're saying, oh, we don't, we don't care about him. I, I think that's just, like, negotiating. Yeah. I think they actually both would rather fight Joshua next for the money, the opportunity for the glory, and then you unify it at the end, right? Yeah. Um, but they're they're trying to get a better cut, so they're saying, "Oh, whatever, you're nothing now. We we just we we elevated ourselves above you with that great fight." I think they they're both hoping that by doing that, they can get a better deal out of out of Joshua and his camp. My fiance and I, Julie, we're watching the fight, and I'm like, "All right, Fury won that round," and I'm legit pacing. I really want the Fury to win, and I'm pacing it, and we're like, "I'm like, all right, 148 seconds," and she's like, "What?" I'm like, "That's how you have to." watch a, a Wilder fight because it's one second. It's not like, all right, win this round. I'm like, all right, 218 seconds, 215. I watched it like that pacing because I'm like, he's and he threw the punch. I'm like, that's it. I threw my phone through the remote. Check. He's getting up. He's getting up. I'm like, what? what? He's getting up. And I was disappointed in the draw. I, I always want a winner. Even if I don't agree with the outcome of it, I always want the winner to happen. The only people who like draw scorecards for people who bet on the draw. That's it. That, that, that's it. Because those things always pay like 25 to 1. So Yo, I, <laughs> dude, it makes sense just to bet a little bit on the draw, doesn't it? Yeah. Hey, is it me or is it boxing? In, is it in really good place? Lomo fought last week. Canelo's fighting this week. Next week, well, I'm a Mick Conlon guy. He's fighting. Then Pacquiao's fighting. Is it in a good place right now? Or is it, are we just in a good, um, like a good like a little segment of it? No, I think it's pretty good. There's a ton of money in the sport. That's definitely good for fighters. And there and, and networks are committing to putting a lot of the sport on TV. To me, this is something that I, I mean, I, I think that a little bit of it is that the, the, the storyline, the narrative that boxing was dead or dying was always a little bit overstated. You know, I started covering it seriously uh, 2011, 2012 for Grantland. And in that time, you could see that the sport always had a, a big following. It always had a devoted following that would show up, that would buy the pay-per-views, that would go to fights, and it was not the follow. It was not these were real fans. This was not like going to a NBA game and it's all corporate accounts. Mm-hmm. These are people who are buying tickets and showing up because they care. 
Um, and it's a more diverse crowd. It's a younger crowd in a lot of cases. And Showtime has done a really good job of making this case. They do these. I mean, it's kind of it's a little bit. Oh, I mean, you call me Hollywood. This is a little bit over the top showbiz <laughs> Hollywood. They, Showtime once a year will have their like upfront where they invite everyone and they have the fighters come out. But one of the things that I really appreciate when they do that is they they put they make the statistical case that boxing is a lot healthier than the people on previously. Well, before ESPN really didn't have any skin in boxing, so they, they, everybody would say, "Oh, it's dying. Who cares?" Blah 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 blah. Um, now there's a big boxing deal. Top ranked, one of the biggest mm-hmm. promoters in the sport, has a deal with ESPN. So you see fighters like Terence Crawford and Lomachenko going on first take. Max Kellerman, of course. I mean, New York guy went to my high school. Um, oh, really? Yeah, we wow. both went to Hunter. Um, he, um, he's, you know, he's been a boxing guy. I remember, I, I remember watching Max on public access when I was a kid. Oh my God! Okay. Like the and and it was just one of these. It was one of those weird shows where he's sitting on. It's like a folding chair. With a with a phone on the floor next to him, <laughs> talking about by he's he's sitting there talking about oh yeah this guy I think this fighter's great but he's not as great as the historically great Harry Greb and I'm like 15 years old like what the hell is he talking about <laughs> um and it was one of those shows that you watch just for when he starts taking calls because <laughs> New York Public Access you know it's it's gonna be all people prank calling him just <laughs> people drinking calling drunk high calling <laughs> up here. Hey Max, <laughs> you a bitch! Like, <laughs> like just nonstop. And, uh, um, and to see him eventually now, now on first take, first take with I Stephen A. The, like the one of the biggest jobs in yes. media uh, is amazing. And and but and and he's freed up now with sort of HBO backing out of boxing. He's freed up. He's getting a new show about boxing on ESPN, um, and it's cool to see. Him bringing in sort of that side of him now to to, to to ESPN and them covering the sport more. No, I think it is really good. There's a lot, there's a lot more money in it. There's a lot more promotion, and there's a lot more. You know, that can only help the interest. I think uh, people. You know, it, it, it probably has a um, a ceiling to it because it's a. It's almost the kind of sport you don't want to get too popular because then it might have to clean up its act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I mean, it is it's a weird alternate universe. I mean, you you talk about how how corporate and clean a lot of the major team sports are, and how if if an NBA player says something even a, like mildly inappropriate, he's gonna be in trouble. Oh, big time! Right? Well, they I train mean, us that. Yeah, right. the media train us too. Like exactly. No joke. So, boxers say the wildest stuff. I mean, they are they they say some really. I mean, and they don't give a shit. And they're from all over the world. They're from places where the people they don't necessarily have the same media training <laughs> or savvy or like where you know you get these guys from east from from Ukraine and Russia who are like you know I don't think women should fight. Yeah. And you're like whoa 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 stop that Yo, chill yeah. chill out chill out. I think she should be in the kitchen. Right like, right. <laughs> I mean Tyson Fury three yeah. years ago he was in. It's it's that talk about a turnaround. Three years ago, this guy's like a uh, the biggest villain. It, to, if people knew about him, the only thing they knew was that wow, this guy's like a caveman, you know, telling women to stay in the kitchen and all this stuff. <laughs> then he goes through this amazing personal drama where he gains weight, goes through depression, addiction, mental disorder, comes back, talk, you know, apparently was close to committing suicide at, at several points in the last couple of years, loses like a hundred pounds in in nine months and comes back and basically beats one of the best heavyweight, the most dangerous heavyweight on the planet 
um, and gets a draw against him. And now everyone's like, this guy's amazing. I love him. He's crazy. Um, it's the Gypsy King. I love him. I love him. Well, now it's funny. I mean, all of a sudden, like even his name is something you should not be able to say in polite American society. Like they tell you, don't say that word, Gypsy. It's 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 it's, it's people it's, wearing shirts now. The right, Gypsy people King. now running around wearing Gypsy <laughs> King hats. So I wonder, uh, you know, boxing. I think it can't really get too big because then. And then, like the the responsible adults are gonna come in and say, "Hey, you guys got to. This is not good. You guys are. This is this is a, this is a blood sport. Everyone is saying really offensive things. Um, and you you know, this is not. This is the reason this is not late at night. I love when people said boxing is a dying sport. When there's a huge fight, everyone's watching, mm-hmm. and you can say what you want. Oh, no one watches boxing. Canelo, Triple G, or forget about that. Even a big, forget about the Mayweather, uh, McGregor thing. If there's a big fight, everyone's going to someone's house. Everyone's watching, and you're glued in. Yeah, that's and, just the truth. And it's and, and it's it's been that way even throughout the whole boxing is dead era, right? The the big the highest paid athletes in sports were still Manny and Floyd. That's it for like eight years running, and now now it's Canelo. Um, it, so th- th- there is enough. There's enough way to enough money to generate there for the sport. I'm glad you mentioned Manny because we both have a Filipino connection. Is your girlfriend Filipino? Uh, she's. I mean, she's born and raised in in L. A. But yes. Oh, she's, okay, so my fiance is Filipino. Manny Pacquiao's fighting. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that fight with Broner? Uh, I think it's a pretty safe fight for Manny. Just really, <sighs> is Broner more of a name at this point? I think he is. Yes, I think so. I mean, you never know. So Broner has that talent. He has he's shown very high level talent, and he does have one thing that is kind of that that is useful against Manny is that he's got great timing, good reflexes, and he can counter. And that's been the. I mean, you can. It's not impossible to see Manny getting a little bit over aggressive and basically running into some kind of similar punch like the one that knocked him out against Juan Manuel Marquez. But if that doesn't happen, Broner is just, you see it, he doesn't, he, he, he's never, he, he doesn't stay in good shape. He doesn't seem to take the sport seriously enough. And boxing is not a, like, of all sports that you got to take seriously, boxing got to be pretty high on the list. It is really, really, really dangerous. There's a, there's a. No one's bailing you out. There's a former champion who lost a couple of weeks ago on the same night as the Tyson Fury fight. In who's still in a medically induced coma yeah. over a fight, Adonis Stevenson. Yeah. Um, so it is a really, really dangerous sport. It's not, and it doesn't, and it's not kind to people who, who unforgi- take it lightly. It's unforgiving. Um, and and we've seen time after time with Broner that for whether it's his style in the ring or his preparation for fights, whatever it is, he comes in and doesn't. He's not active. He doesn't throw punches. He's pretty. He's 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 flashy. He's good. He'll land some good shots, but. Well, while he's there posing and, and, and mugging and messing around, the other guy's doing more work and winning rounds. And I think that Manny probably will, will be able, unless, unless he runs into something that gets, that, that, that gets him hurt bad or knocked out, which is, I say there's a chance, but not a great chance of that. Um, unless that happens, I think he wins that fight. You're going to go watch Canelo tonight? I am, yeah. That's why I'm in town. Oh, is that really what yeah, you came yeah. in just to fight? Well, you know, I, I mean, it was the kind of thing where I was planning to come in and see my father for a week, and it, I, I knew that if I yeah, I saw that there were two, I could kind of bookend it. I came in. Lomo? Yeah, exactly. I came in last week on Friday night and and then caught the Lomachenko fight at the Garden, and I'm going back to the Garden tonight to see the Canelo. And did you get hooked up with good seats? I don't know. I, it, I won't know until I get there and see my credential. I think Credentials. It's unbelievable how big Hollywood. time it is. My man. 
you have a podcast. <laughs> you interview boxers. I promise you. I will. I'll, next time there's a fight in the city, I'll send you the credential <laughs> form. You'll be there too. We'll we'll be up, we'll be up in the, the 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 bad auxiliary press together. You know it's funny. I'll tell you. So I, I became very good friends with Jerry Cooney. Yeah, he, he does a show yeah. at, at XM, and I'm like, hey, I'm like, uh, can you hit me up with your producer? So his producer Josh Josh hits me up. I'm like, Josh, I'm like, I don't know how this works. I'm like, I just do a little podcast. I got very lucky that Opie hired me at Westwood One. I'm like, uh, how do I get a credential thing? He's like, bro, you do better just getting a ticket. I'm like, why? He goes, I'll, you want credentials, dude? He sent me the form. He's like, they'll give it to you in a second. He's like, bro, we're so high up. He's like, Cooney, he'll be down low. Everyone else, he's like, you're gonna see name people upstairs. So I didn't know that, but you'll be you'll be down low for sure. Later. I don't I don't know. Usually at the big fights these days, because my affiliation is with sort of as the as just a podcast co-host, I I can't always count on getting into the 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 ringside. But sometimes it depends on the how big the fight is, how big with Canelo because he brings in so much international attention. I'm 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 not I'm not counting on being uh, ringside tonight, but it's possible. It's, a, it's it's we'll see. Um, no, you talk about how easy it is to get credentials to boxing. For about six months, the guy I do the podcast with, the podcast with right now, Brian Campbell, we started a. It's kind of just to experiment. We started like a boxing Snapchat account. Wow. Where we, between each other, basically we shared the same account, <laughs> shared the password. <laughs> And it was—I mean—it was really fun. We—it was—we it, we, we had a blast doing it. Uh, the handful of people who watched it loved it. I think it was like a, a, a editorial success, but it was not a, a very popular success. Um, <laughs> but we were basically like—you know—I wake up in the morning, do like five crazy snaps about the sport, whatever, and then text him and say, "Okay, I'm done. You do yours." So then he comes back and responds. So it's kind of like trying to do like a, a back and forth. In a in that in that format, and it, again, it it was not a it was not a huge thing. But you know what I was counting on? I I was thinking, you know what? A lot of the people in boxing are kind of old school. You can kind of fool them with some flash and be like, it's Snapchat. It's the future. So I was getting credentials based off of a oh. Snapchat account for about six months. Lord. And what is your credentials like? What it hold? What What do you mean? Like what What did you get with the credentials? Just Where did I go? Like yeah, well, you got into into the arena. That's it. Yeah. Well, I mean, depending on the fight, I went to, um, you know, the small, basically the smaller events. Like you're you're at ringside. If you like the Lomachenko fight, there's no there's no up to put you in there. So you're gonna get a good seat to something like that if it's in the theater. The theater. Yeah. 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 Um, or at the StubHub Center in L.A. You know, there there's no bad seats in that place. Uh, and then like I remember the the biggest fight I went to on the Snapchat account was uh. Uh, Canelo versus Amir Khan, and that one was up in the top of the of, of the. But that's the a big fight, huge fight, yeah. And then the best thing about it was because it was an HBO fight. Because I mean, this is this is this is this is the Hollywood stuff. Um, <laughs> because because it was an HBO fight, and I was still friendly with a lot of the HBO guys uh, from from when we did Grantland. They found me up in the top. They said, "Hey, man, you coming down with us?" So so I I, I got down to ringside in time for the main event. Bigger bigger love, basketball or boxing. Basketball. I mean, basketball is a sport that I really, um, that I play, that I still play. That 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 means I, that I can't live without. Boxing is a lot of fun. I love I love covering it. I love following it. I think it, 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 the the characters. It's a truly international sport. I love all that. But like ba- like if I th- there's only one sport I can't live without, and that's basketball. Two players that are must watch, appointment watching. If you're going through your schedule, like all right, I can stay in tonight. My girlfriend's gonna go out. And I can be home. Two players you have to watch. 
This is boring, but probably Giannis and Steph. See, I was just saying Giannis and Luca. Luca is like really like I'm into him. I would watch. I I, I mean, but when you you so you're watching full Mavs games for I'm him. Watching a lot of Mavs games. All right. I mean, because his. That's the thing. He's more up and down. I mean, as he should be. He's still a rookie. Yeah, no. He he scored three points. I'm like, oh, I I invested tonight. I lied to my fiance. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna do this, and I'm like, oh, I really invested all this to watch Luca have eight points, four rebounds, and three assists. But then he dropped 21 the other night. Right. Giannis every night. Giannis is must watch every night. Anthony Davis, not just yeah. Kentucky, uh, Kentucky connection. Anthony Davis, you have to watch him. He's just unbelievable. No, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, that was the that was the other guy I was thinking of when I when I was thinking. Oh, do I just say like something boring with Steph, or do I do AD, which is not much less boring, but mm-hmm. but <laughs> not quite uh, as as obvious. Um, yeah, those guys. I mean, they they are all doing something that you never ah you never I don't think thought was truly possible in basketball. Um, the you know I mean Steph has made bad shots good. In a way that no, still no one else really does. I mean, you get guys, you know, Kemba, uh, Damian Lillard are starting to, you know, have a little bit of that pull-up game where they can shoot some threes off the dribble uh, in a, in a, you know, in the blink of an eye. Uh, but still, the kind of the kind of stuff that you see Curry do, it doesn't. He makes once a game, he makes a shot that is like the best, sh- the, the 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 luckiest shot you ever made in your life. And he and he's trying to, you know, it's like it's just unbelievable. And it, we, even though it's been around for years, it's it's it, it shouldn't get old. Don't let it get old because it's amazing. He's single-handedly rooting uh, AAU basketball, <laughs> but he's making it fun to watch. Uh, best thing you learned in the book? You do in the book. What's one thing besides a uh, baton twirling, which should have been your answer? One other thing that you like? Holy shit! You read it three or four times. Like, is this true? Let me think. Let me think. Do. You, um, Tell me what was the most surprising thing to you while I while I go through this. The con- my biggest thing was Connie Hawkins. I always in my mind, I'll tell you two things. Connie Hawkins was one. I'm like cuz I always thought he was a point shaver. I always thought so. And the other one, and I've always heard this throughout my life, the Willis Reed game 7. I always thought that Willis Reed came out from the tunnel and dropped like 25, had 14. Willis Reed had 4 points. He hit the first two baskets and didn't score again. I didn't know that. So those two things, and that went back from uh, watching Game Seven. I watched you watch it last night, like one thirty. I got home from work last night, one thirty in the morning. Julia's sleeping. I have the iPad out. I'm like, you know what? Willis Reed, and he came out, hits the first shot. I'm like, hits the second shot. He doesn't score again. So the Willis Reed thing for me was the most fascinating. And then Connie Hawkins, I always thought he was a point shaver. He was like some shady dude from Brooklyn. And that, those are the two things that, in the book, the most for me. So yeah, I, that that brings to mind for me. Uh, a couple, especially with when you mentioned Connie Hawkins. So I knew a little more about Connie Hawkins. Like I knew that I, I didn't know as many details as I learned while working on the book, but I I, I knew that it was not it, it was <laughs> he got a raw deal. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know really about Roger Brown, who was the you know who who played at Wingate High School, which I I played Wingate in high school, um, and um, and he was the other. The another guy caught up in the same same scandal as as Connie Hawkins, just as unfairly, and he almost you know he's the one who was stuck working in like a, a car fa- in an auto factory in Dayton for five years after after being one of the greatest high school players of all time. I mean he he, the, the, he and, and 
and his story isn't as well known because he was sort of so burned by it that he chose to stay in the ABA and finish his career there with the Pacers, where he was a great player, but because he didn't, he was too old to sort of stick around and, and jump to the NBA. Even though he won his lawsuit and could have, he stayed with the Pacers because they that was the they were the people he trusted. Um, and hearing the reading the way the other players talked about him, the way that you know that he would he how how <laughs> talked like Mel Daniels, who was the center on that team, talking about how Roger Brown would have guys like screaming help as soon as he <laughs> caught the ball, and that he's like laughing on his way to he would be laughing so hard after he beat a guy that he'd almost miss the layup because he was just laughing at guys. Um, and then I watched a great documentary uh, that was on PBS that you can find online. It's still on the PBS website about Roger Brown and the famous game when, you know, Wingate High played boys and girls high in, 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 in the garden, the, you know, New York championship game. Uh, and it was Connie Hawkins versus Roger Brown. And they were, it was uh, one of, they say like the, the biggest crowd ever for, for a high school basketball game in the city. Just learning about him. I, I, I absolutely loved. And, and, then some of the fun stuff in the ABA, like guys, some of the <laughs> the thing that blew my mind, John Brisker, this guy from Detroit who was known as like the baddest man. Was that the in, fighter? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this guy. Dude, you got to read this book, man. This guy, John Definitely Brisker, <laughs> who, you know, from Detroit, no no one would fight him in the, in the, in the ABA because of how scary the guy was. Um, and he disappeared after after his career and they and and ended up being like a mercenary in Uganda what running like blood diamonds and 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 I guess like working under Idi Amin the dictator there and and his he was declared dead you know in like 10 years later but no one has ever no found, his found his body like <laughs> he just disappeared and oh. it just uh, it's like uh, whoa and and on top of that they could say he really could play like he was averaging like 28 during his ABA <laughs> career, great shooter, strong. Nobody would fa- nobody would get in his way whenever he, he drove. <laughs> uh, a guy I worked with was like, "Hey, cause we, I I brought up the one negative was Tammy Mutombo, yeah. and he's like, the only negative I have is like no Rucker Park stuff, and I I'll answer it for you, and maybe I'm wrong. We're New York centric, so we're like Rucker Park's the greatest. All these other places have these famous playgrounds where there's probably 80 other players. Like we have Earl the Goat, we have these guys." But is that the reason why that was maybe left out of it? Or did that really not kind of tie into maybe professional organized basketball? Yeah, I think it's a little of both. So, I mean, part of it, you know, some of the constraints are just what was spoken about in these interviews. We don't, if there wasn't a lot of, if the questions going in didn't focus on the, the sort of the, the, that side of the New York game or the gotcha. playground, the, that, that stuff, then it just never came out. And I don't remember them talking a lot. I mean, there is one mention in the book of Rucker Park, and it's one of my favorite quotes. It's Nancy Lieberman Klein, who grew up in the far Rockaway, talking about how she heard the best players were up at the Rucker. And she, from, I, this is, man, who the hell does that from far Rockaway? Take the A train up to. <laughs> I don't even go up there. That's, that's far. Um, she, you know, she like says she stuffed her jacket full of newspapers to look bigger. So she didn't get robbed on the right. train. Jumped on the train, goes all the way up to the rucker and walks on the par- uh, onto the court. And there's some guys, you know, playing pickup there. It wasn't like a tournament or anything. And she <laughs> she says, you know, they're like, "What are you doing here, little girl?" And she's like, "I'm here to play." And they say, "Well, you can't play with us." He's like, w-. she she asks the guy, "Is your name Rucker?" 
And they're like, nah. He's like, well, then I'm playing. It's not your, it's not your park. Um, <laughs> that, that was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there is that mention of it. But, I, I mean, I do think that with the players talking, you know, there's enough New York in there that, I, I mean, look, that was important to me. I'm mm-hmm. not going to let that book happen without getting a lot of New York in there. And, and also Dan Clores is from he, – he, he, he loves to tell people. He is – you know, he's born and raised in Brooklyn from Coney Island back when it was kind of more of a Jewish enclave than we think of it now yeah. um, and was the captain at Lincoln. Oh really? So he played, and he could, wow. and and his son is good. I think like gonna play at Columbia, um, so his son can play. Um, and so he really, and he actually, I mean, he's a big player in uh, a, in AAU. He 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 runs the uh, the New York Rens program, where like Raleigh Alkins yeah, came poor, out of, poor. and a lot, you know, um, a lot of NBA guys come from there now. Um, and he's a big, you know, he he helps, you know, he helps fundraise for it, and is a big, is a coach there, and and does a lot for it. So he's he's really involved in the in the grassroots level of the game, um, and but he, you know, he 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 made sure to talk to a lot of New York New York players, a lot of New York coaches, um, and really, you get a sense of the city game. I think from 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 the way he interviewed people, even if it didn't focus. I think I think the bias probably was that he was talking to guys from Brooklyn about Brooklyn yeah. <laughs> rather than talking about guys from uptown. What's next for you, book wise? I don't know you, yet. You love writing, of course. Yeah, no, I, I and writing books is really a, a, um, a different kind of experience than than articles and stuff like that because you have total control. Uh, sometimes it's scary because they don't. You don't always. <laughs> you know, you feel like, oh man, if I screw this up, no one's gonna save me. They're, they're like. The editors at publishing houses are almost too busy to to really <laughs> pull you you know pull you out of the, the hole if you're if you're stuck, um, but at the same time it's the only format where you're not worried about is this gonna fit the voice of the publication is this gonna be the kind of story they want is this the angle they want you know once you get that book contract you are writing the book you want to write and as long as it's good you got nothing to worry about at least in how you know how how you feel about it. Um, so I love doing that. There's a, there's some stories I, I'd love to do. Um, uh, uh, it's hard because of the stuff. Honestly, I'm still really animated by, um, by writing about and traveling to the Philippines. There's stories out there, basketball related and not, that I'm dying to do. There's a there, like the in the in northern Luzon in the mountains in there. You can there there's an entire region where like people almost solely listen to old country music makes no sense you go up there and the rest of, you know the rest of the philippines you go to manila like they're playing top 40 yeah of course and and local music you know it's the same as it's global so it's a real global capital um but then you go to some of these other areas they have this totally different culture and they're playing nothing but weird country music and it kind of makes sense because it's like the the lifestyle there is more pastoral and slower and they relate to the stories and the and the working the land the kind of living on the land kind of side of country but like i've always wanted to go up there and and spend, you know, a few months kind of absorbing it and and trying to figure out like how the hell did Randy Travis become the number one music in in Mountain Province? Like how did this happen? Like when are you going back to the Philippines again? Hopefully, I'm going to go I'm going to be back just to visit for maybe 2-3 weeks in early um 2019, maybe February, March. When when you say visit, who are you going to visit in the Philippines? I have godchildren, Anak, um uh, lots of you know friends, guys. I, the the basketball league I've always stayed in pretty close contact with out there. Um, How was the basketball out there? Good game. 
uh, yeah, skill wise, it's it's very very good. Um, it's one of the more fun styles in Asia in that it's guys are the, the athleticism is really high. The other like there's no height. You know they still they still aren't aren't producing players who can get big enough to co- sort of compete on a on a world level on an NBA level. Um, well, there have been some. I mean, there's a story about this guy Johnny Abarientos in the in the 90s who was going to play for the Charlotte Hornets, but it just didn't like something something didn't work out. Um, but there, but the, the 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 talent and the skill level and the style of game is really fun. You see some of the most creative finishes, some of the like. There's just different style. There's a different style of 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 getting to the basket there that you don't see in 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 the U.S. because Guys usually aren't finishing above the rim, so like they, the 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 English they use on their shots and the the um the the angles the the they some of the some of the side steps or the euro steps they use it's some you see some really unique stuff there that's that's a lot of fun to watch and 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 plus it's just great to be in a, a real basketball country. I think there's only a few places in the world like the Philippines, Lithuania, Serbia, where everyone everyone knows the game. Everyone. Will, has played it just touches everyone everyone's paying attention where so so you you just feel like it's everywhere around you when you're in the philippines where are you going to go manila so i i always stay in manila if i get and then i and then i'll go on a i try and go somewhere new each time um i I haven't figured it out yet i they just reopened i know you've been to baracay right um that's a beautiful that's like one of the most amazing beaches on the planet um, they just reopened it a couple like a month ago, so so that's that's open again. I don't I, don't, I think I'm probably not going to go back there this time, but uh, you know. Uh, Did your girlfriend go with you? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, Does she get upset with you when you go without her? She gets upset with me when we go together too, because we're the, the ultimate odd couple out there. We are because, uh, you know, I mean, she she's born and raised in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't speak Tagalog. And um, you speak it. I do. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, people are so weirded out by us. Yeah. Um, and in some, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's annoying because people, you know, it's, it's weird. It's one of the things that's unfortunate is that people, are, and, it, and it sort of prevents um, a lot, of, uh, not prevents, but it's, a, it's an obstacle for Filipino Americans who travel back there and try to learn the language or, or start. If you're totally white or totally foreign and you learn just one word, you know, you can't say anything, but you say like "salamat." There will be people are like, "Yes, yes, you're amazing," you know. Uh, but if you, you know, if you're if you have Filipino blood, if you're obviously look people look at you can tell you're Pinoy, then they're like, "How come you can't speak the language?" So there's a there's a judge. It's there's more people are more judgmental of their own people, you know, uh, of of their own people than than someone who's just clearly foreign. So it's tough. Um, what was the restaurant we went to in Queens? Um, Ihawan. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Tito Raz. So we go, we go there, yeah. and I was the only white dude in there, and I'm just eating all, you know, regular mm-hmm. Filipino food, halo halo, and the guy walks over like, you are the king. Give me high fives and stuff, and she gets pissed off about it. No, but he got a free beer, <laughs> and I was like, where's mine? Yeah. Hey, what part of the Philippines are you from, Julia? Bulacan. Oh, so right outside Manila. Yeah. Where in Bulacan? Uh, I have family in Mm. Why are you putting the accent on now, Julie? You never had the accent on. Hey, how yeah, you want to say the names it. right? H- how'd you yeah. learn it for real? Because I actually just told her I'm like, we just got engaged uh, five, six days ago. 
You're welcome. We <laughs> Congratulations. Take your mic off. We just got engaged, and I said to him, like, hey, I want to learn a language. I do. Well, how did you go? Well, I know you moved there, but how did you go about learning it? So while living there, I had a tutor who I, who, who I met with twice a week. So basically four hours of study a week. Um, and actually, you know, committed pretty hard to it, I think. Because I know a lot of people who live, uh, you know, Americans who, who live in the Philippines full time, whether it's because of basketball or for some other kind of work. They get by just fine there, really not learning much yeah. of the language because people speak English very widely. It's even, you know, I mean, the average cab driver in Manila, you know, probably speaks English as well as the average cab driver in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's very easy to get by without learning. Uh, so you really have to do, you do have to make an effort. Um, but basketball was also a huge thing for helping with that because I was out there, you know, playing ball, it, it, just jumping in uh, at some of the, the, the games in the street or at the local municipal courts and stuff where you meet, you know, you're, you're interacting with guys who might not speak English as well as the, 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 some of the, the sort of more upper class people. Um, so you, you, that actually forced me to use what I was learning. And also, j it just takes time, man. It was, I would say, you know, it's like after one year, I felt like, Oh yeah, I, I'm kind of getting this. And then after the second year, I was like, man, I didn't know a goddamn thing after one year. So it's it, and and it almost just clicks in at some point in time where you're like, oh, now now this feels natural versus I'm always thinking about it. And you speak it fluently. Close. I I mean, not like a. You can tell I'm not a native native speaker, mm -hmm. but um, I speak it well. And how'd you last thing? How'd you start on it? Like I know you wanted to, but like how do you even like? What's the first class about it? To to learn a language, yeah. Um, well, I got man. My first lessons was when I knew I was going to be moving to the country on a research grant to write that book, um, and I just started going to a. Uh, I was still in Chicago for college, and the I, I called up the consulate and said, "Hey, is there someone? Uh, do you know? Is there a tutor you could hook me up with or whatever?" And they someone who worked at the consulate basically invited me to her her house on the weekends and was it would they were not very formal lessons she basically was you know teaching me the food she's feeding me cocoa jam and <laughs> and, <laughs> and like um like a lot of pandasal and and was just and and then just pointing at things in her house and being like ayun ang silia ayun ang you know is it like like it was um, so it was not a very formal first lessons, but then I kept, you know, finding new ways after that. And, um, God, I think, you know, it's like, it's like going back to class, think, think about high school learning language. You yeah. know, the, the, your, your tutor lays out some papers, you see the basic verb conjugations, the pronouns, and then it starts from there. And then, and, and, and sentence structure, which is, um, different, you know, the syntax is, is different in Tagalog. So there's, there, it, it goes, sort of goes from there. Difficult language to learn? I think it's, I, well, so I've heard that the CIA classifies it as not a very dis difficult language to well, learn. Well, if they said, then we're good. <laughs> so we're good. <laughs> um, I think it's probably a little bit harder to learn than the Romance languages, you know, Spanish, French, uh, stuff like that, because it's, there, there are fewer cognates, there are, the, the, the grammar is, can, be, can be tricky. Like, you can, you can switch depending on how you, um, want to arrange the, the the verbs and the different pronouns, you can say the same sentence with basically the same meaning. I mean, like a, to a native speaker, there, there are reasons why you would choose to say it one way over another. But 
the basic meaning it can be the same and you can say the same sentence in five different ways. So there, that, that stuff is, and it takes a long time for that to sort of click in and, and start to feel like it makes any sense to you. That's actually my New Year's resolution for Julia and her family to teach me to speak it. I would say in addition to like, so you want to practice with the family, but you should also find someone who will actually sit you down and like a real make schooling. you go through some, some basic like, like the grammar and stuff like that. Because it's hard to just pick. I mean, you can't if if you're like true immersion, you'll pick it up. But it's hard to to, to actually have that happen. Back to the book because I loved it so much. I'm going to wrap this up. We I asked this last time. Now now you're Hollywood on me. You and I hang out at a bar. Coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back. Jackie McMullen. She would text you right back. Obviously, right, right? back, right back. Uh, how, how fun was it doing the press for the book? Was it cool? Yeah, it's great. I mean. It was weird because I've so so we got to the, I think the, the 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 most fun and exciting and and scary part was when we went on the jump the day the book comes out you know Rachel Nichols I, I watched ESPN, that yes um, it's sort of like this is this is the big time and it's funny because you know you, yeah okay uh, let's, let's talk Hollywood like I have so in in Manila I have I've done TV shows I've done halftime panels for the PBA I've done you know I've I've hosted like documentary shows about basketball in Tagalog like and got very comfortable doing that and so I felt like I, I kind of think oh yeah I got enough TV experience I can handle this I was scared shitless going on the jump just because I don't know it's 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 just different it this is the real deal this is not this is this feel it feels like such a big thing and you're there with Rachel Nichols and and you know in the back you know in the next segment they're gonna have like Paul Pierce come out and you're like this is this is another level that w- and that w- you did a good job, though. I hope so. I don't know. That's where I stole the Holy Grail thing from, because mm-hmm. w- I watched it on there. And you're like, yeah, this is the Holy Grail of basketball interviews. I, it felt that way to me. I really do believe. I, and and one of my favorite things about the entire pro- process, the the thing that I hold on to, and I'm like, will never ever let go. I don't care how well the book does or any of that stuff. I have that. I have those interviews. I can look. I can reread them. I can. I can I, like I have that 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 all that accumulated wisdom that I can look at any time. That's so unbelievable, man. Listen, to have you come on again, beyond the pleasure, bro. I actually love fucking hanging out with you, man. I love when you come on. Me too, man. I, 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 I whenever I'm home, I'll just come through and we can we can bullshit. Well, when are you here, Taylor? You know what's coming on in two weeks? Teddy Atlas. Oh man, he's coming on doing two and a half hours. Two and a half, man. He's gonna talk the whole. You're not even gonna ask well, a question. He's a close family friend. I never asked him to come on, and then he comes on Joe Rogan's show. I'm like, yeah. I should have had Teddy on. So I text him. He's like, Whenever you want. How long do you need me? So as a joke, I wrote three hours. I was still texting like, LOL. He's like, How about two and a half? You bring the food. I'm like, Okay. I'm like, I'm gonna say one word and just walk out because it's gonna be Teddy for two and a half hours. <laughs> Teddy's great. We actually we interviewed him for uh for the the CBS boxing podcast a couple of, like last week. He's great. Uh, you just, you just, you just, you basically just press record and he'll go. Yeah, and you just go. You, you say, Teddy, what's up? And he just goes. He just yeah. goes. Rafe, a pleasure, my friend. My man. Thank you. My friend. Dude, thank you so much, man. I fucking love hanging out with you. Thank you. you. That was awesome. Thank I you. learned so much. <laughs> like, 